Welcome to Gravity, a podcast on the environment and human rights issues from the local to the global. The United States has effectively criminalized immigration and the right to asylum by instituting a policy of detaining and prosecuting all people that enter the United States seeking asylum. The United States has separated children from their parents at the border and has been unable to fully comply with a court order to reunite them. Family separation is not merely occurring at the border. The United States is deporting undocumented parents of US citizen minors, splitting up families and forcing minors into foster care. The United States has established a denaturalization task force which effectively strips full citizenship from all naturalized citizens by denying them the essence of citizenship, equality, and permanence. I spoke with Paromita Shah, Associate Director of the National Lawyers Guild's National Immigration Project, on these issues and more. Welcome to Gravity, Paromita. Thank you for having me. I'm thrilled to be here. May you please tell our audience about the National Lawyers Guild Immigration Project and the work that you do? Sure. Um, Well, the National Immigration Project of the National Lawyers Guild um, is a national nonprofit, and we provide legal and technical assistance to immigrant communities, um, lawyers, legal advocates, all of whom are working to advance the rights of non-citizens. We focus our efforts on promoting justice and equality and not only in immigration law, but um, for non-citizens in the criminal justice system and social policies related to immigration. Um, and so that would look like this. You know, if we we would be defending people who are often excluded from society, um, that would be detained and incarcerated immigrants, um, non-citizens living with um, AIDS or non-citizen survivors of intimate partner and sexual violence. Um, We work with people who have been profiled or policed um, and have been the victims of like very punitive immigration enforcement policies. I understand that sometimes very minor criminal infractions can impact a person's immigration status. Is that correct? Yeah, absolutely. Um, Under our immigration laws, which are extremely harsh um, and, and, you know, really have a punitive quality to them. Um, people who you never thought would be subject to deportation, even people who have green cards, um, can be deported um, for very minor criminal offenses. Um, so, for example, um, people who have, you know, um, stolen hubcaps off a car and maybe get a one-year suspended sentence, um, those people would be considered to have committed under immigration law what is um, called a uh, an aggravated felony, um, even though it may not be a felony, may not be aggravated, but it is under our immigration laws. And those people uh, may be deported without ever seeing a judge or without ever having the opportunity to have a hearing before an immigration judge to defend their right in the United States. So that speaks to the severity of these laws and why we chose to get into them, because they are so disproportionate to what we think of as being fair as to what we think people, how people should be treated under our laws. And I think really in an insidious way go to some of the motivations for the laws that we have now, like how they were created and who they were supposed to impact over time. And so you could be a lawful permanent resident 
and even entitled to U.S. citizenship but haven't taken up U.S. citizenship and commit a completely nonviolent minor offense, including, say, personal drug possession, would that be a criminal uh, case that might subject someone to deportation? Yeah, so it may not subject a legal permanent resident to deportation all the time, but it would certainly block somebody from, you know, in many cases from getting a green card. So, you know, so for people who've lived here for decades, right, um, or if you're married to a U.S. citizen, right, and you want to get, you want to get married, but you, you know, you were, um, you know, you had a lot more pot and you were convicted for it, let's say like, you know, several joints worth, um, that could be a bar. Uh, to you getting a green card. And those are the types of conduct that, you know, we engage in when we're younger, right? Um, And the problem with that is even if you did want to create sanctions for it, under immigration law, they are permanent, right? Because it leads to deportation. And once you're deported, it's not like you can easily come back. In many cases, it may be a permanent bar. Um, and so what that means is like it leads to a permanent exile and the permanent separation of families. One impact that I can think of, it could be, like I said, like stealing hubcaps. It could be some types of drug possession. It could be, you know, you get mad at somebody, you throw a hairbrush at somebody. That could be a crime that you've been convicted of that could result in deportation. These are all fairly minor crimes and it's not to say that there aren't big crimes that trigger it. Is it right to have permanent separations of families? And, you know, I think there's no better way to see it now as we looked at, like, the grotesque spectacle before us um, that looks at family separation, right? Um, and we see families being torn apart now very visibly before our very eyes where we see the trauma um, on the children and the families. And, and you should really believe that, you know, that kind of trauma has been going on under our current immigration laws for decades. Um, and it's something that needs to be fixed so that we can, you know, really get to the issue of, of, um, making sure families, um, have, get to remain, together with their loved ones, but also to ensure that people get a a right to a a fair and meaningful hearing where people have an ability to share what are the equities um, and the problems that they've had throughout their life, um, as opposed to just having, you know, kind of um, summary deportation. One positive that has recently occurred amidst all this Stygian circumstance in the immigration landscape currently has been a recent Supreme Court decision, Demaya, which struck down a vague law. May you please elaborate more on the positive impact that Demaya may have with respect to deportation proceedings? Sure. I mean, Demaya is um, was a Supreme Court case and you know, it involved a kind of technical section of the law that the government was using all the time to deport someone. The problem with that section of the law is that it was very vague and that they would kind of use it as a bucket, like a, um, 
as a huge loophole to catch anyone that they couldn't catch under the dozens of existing grounds of deportation we have. So they would say, oh, I couldn't catch you here. Um, you know, let's say under a theft ground or under assault ground. So I'm going to bring it to this technical section. And what the Supreme Court said, oh, you know, this this provision is so broad, it is so vague that it's unconstitutional. Um, and so what Demaya did was really correct what was an overbroad, very vague provision under our current law and say that, dear government, you can't use this very vague provision as a catch-all for all the deportations that you're not winning under the law. I'd like to discuss the grotesque zero-tolerance policy that's happening right now. And it seems to be an effective criminalization of asylum seekers, which is against our international obligations. And we're also denying people entrance into the border, essentially refouling them. So that refoulement is another violation of international law. And family separation is also a violation of international law. May you please elaborate more on how the U.S. is currently stampeding on its international obligations with respect to asylum seekers on our borders? Yeah, in October of... 2017 and, you know, through May of 2018, people began to see the U.S. government separating families. And these families were coming to the border and asking for asylum. They claimed that the conditions in their country was untenable. It was unmanageable, dangerous. What the government decided to do was two things. Label the parents as criminals under a policy called zero tolerance, and then split them from their kids, right? Um, and when they split them from those kids, those kids became unaccompanied and were sent to government custody or foster care. In April 2018, this policy of prosecutions of, of the families who were coming across the border was formalized by Attorney General Sessions, who's running the Department of Justice. He basically made the choice to implement existing immigration laws in a very new extreme way. So like I said before, they would the parents would come, they would ask for asylum, but instead what he would do first is separate the, the parents uh, to charge them either with two types of crimes. It was either going to be unlawful entry, which is a misdemeanor punishable by up to 180 days, or unlawful re-entry, which is a felony punishable by up to 20 years in a federal prison. And he, he did that, you know, once you start prosecuting a person, they can't um, stay together in a civil immigration facility. They're going to go, they're going to be separated because they're going to go to federal jail. Um, and so um, when he did that, he called this campaign, which I view as a campaign of terrorizing families. He called this um, zero tolerance. Um, and what he planned to do was to use these as the legal weapons, basically to separate families um, under the, the Trump administration by prosecuting and essentially imprisoning uh, migrant parents. Um, and when you do that, their children, of course, will have to go um, and to these federal foster programs. Once that happens, just to be clear what zero tolerance will look like, like some experts estimate that zero tolerance policies will mean the prosecution of more than 200,000 people per year. 
and that already these federal prosecution policies right now take up over half of all federal prosecutions. Basically, what he did is he he took what was already going, which was prosecutions under for unlawful entry or unlawful reentry, and he turned that on families. And as a result of that, uh, folks have been separated, and they don't get the really the chance to apply for asylum. When do they get the chance to apply for asylum and have their cases heard? Well, they really won't get that until their case is over. What does that look like for asylum seekers? Well, it looks like this. After World War II, our government ratified a bunch of international treaties because we looked at how we had treated asylum seekers during World War II. We had turned away, you know, hundreds of asylum seekers um, during World War II, people who are fleeing genocide, right? And we passed a bunch of these laws, and these laws, which were part of, like, you know, refugee treaties, they were incorporated in our current U.S. statutes. And so what it said, these current U.S. statutes, is it said that any non-citizen who arrives in the United States... Um, have a right to apply for asylum, irrespective of the non-U.S. citizen status. And and I recognize that people will be fleeing, that they may not have a visa, and that they will not come into the U.S. by regular channels. In other words, they may come in not using legal channels. And they may come in trying to come in undetected, but they get this right uh, to apply for asylum. And if they don't even qualify for asylum, they may qualify for something um, called withholding of removal or relief under the Convention Against Torture, where they say that you cannot deport people whose lives or freedom would be threatened um, under our laws, and um, because that would be considered a violation of international laws and treaties that we would sign into. But instead, what Zero Tolerance did uh, was, number one, it criminalized everybody who was coming to the border. And what it said that instead of looking at people who are coming to our border as um, people who are facing great peril, people who are um, trying to flee for their safeties, who may have what's called a well-founded fear of persecution, um, instead what they've said is that we're going to prosecute you under these statutes. And that is how Thousands of children essentially have been separated from their kids is because of these criminal prosecutions. The criminalization of migration is a march that has been going on, frankly, since the 50s. And I'm happy to get into the history of these laws, which are really troubling, have deep roots um, in white supremacy over the years, but um, really have been used against asylum seekers and have, like you said, Um, created this grotesque spectacle of families being separated every day. May you please elaborate more on the white supremacist origins of U.S. immigration law? Sure. The most recent versions of these laws were put into place in 1952. So the Immigration and Nationality Act, which is the, which you know, houses all our immigration laws. The roots of unlawful entry, unlawful entry, unlawful re-entry, excuse me, which essentially is the criminalization of border crossing, has those roots in a 1920 law that was explicitly designed to deter immigration from Mexico. And it really wanted to criminalize and prosecute and prison um, specifically Mexicans. It was authored by Senator Bleese, who was a pro-lynching 
uh, white supremacists, and he pushed these border criminalization laws into being. And he cited the me- what he called, quote unquote, the Mexican problem as being uh, the basis, the need for these types of laws. And you can really see, um, you can draw this connection between the rhetoric that we're hearing right now from Attorney General Jeff Sessions, who is talking about being overwhelmed by those seeking to, quote unquote, stampede the U.S. language that is dehumanizing the mostly brown immigrants, right, crossing the border. And it's very much connected to the language um, that was used in creating the laws for unlawful entry and unlawful re-entry by Senator Blease, also ironically from Alabama. And so it was it was really interesting to see these connections um, that have these troubling roots, um, these rotten foundations that are about really excluding categories of people. And, you know, in the past, it was Mexicans that were viewed as the threat to the United States. And now it's troubling. It's sad that we view people also coming from the global south of Central America and also from Mexico fleeing persecution. We, we view them in the same way as, as our current government seeks to revive what looks like to be very racist terminology. You know, I think one way that these laws will be operationalized, and I want to be really clear that what it's going to look like is when I said that we're looking at 200,000 people being prosecuted under these laws um, in the future, is that it's going to happen through what's called Operation Streamline, which is a it's been an operation that's been around for 10 plus years. But if you look at Operation Streamline, I'm not sure if you've heard of it. It's really a strategy of mass hearings and mass imprisonment where you know, dozens of immigrants are essentially lined up, shackled together in orange jumpsuits in a courtroom where it's not even clear where they understand what's happening, where they're arraigned, found guilty, uh, convicted and sentenced simultaneously. And so Operation Streamline, which is like, you know, how they're going to operationalize the use of these zero tolerance policies, looks like a, like a mass prosecution, right? Um, Which is the opposite of what you think of when you think of due process in the United States. And what I think is expected now, and what we're hearing about now is that the choice that is being offered to these defendants are this. Either you plead guilty to rejoin your family and be reunited with your child, or um, you take the separation you know, for months and possibly the permanent separation uh, from your child. That is what zero tolerance will look like, I think, in the near future. And already we've seen Department of Justice officials um, who are making statements, cases where people are trying to uh, create obstacles to these to family separation, where they are saying, making these statements like, look, you know, these folks will ultimately have a choice. They'll have to decide whether they want to have family detention altogether and be detained for a very long period of time together. That means family detention. They're hoping to detain up to 15,000 in the near future. Or we can just say that this family member will be prosecuted and um, this child will be separated and go through the federal foster care process that we have set up for them. The Southern District of California has demanded that the government reunite families. I believe the first deadline was 
this Tuesday, July 10, which the government did not meet for all families, and that was for all children under five to be reunified with their parents. Now, the government is requesting further and further extensions. May you please tell us more about the reunification that the court is demanding and the government's efforts and, well, (laughs) the government's inabilities to comply with the court's demands? Yeah, I mean, I think it's, you know, the ACLU deserves, um, you know, credit for filing this lawsuit in March of 2018, uh, this case called Miss Lay. Um, and Miss Lay was a, you know, Cameroonian immigrant who had been separated from her daughter. They'd been separated by, you know, essentially 2000 miles. And as a result of that, what turned out what ended up being a class action lawsuit, the judge did uh, issue an order saying that the government has to start reuniting families and set this deadline of July 10th for children under five to be reunited uh, with their um, with their families. And of course, they didn't. You know, it looked like they had only done four um, by by Tuesday. And, uh, you know, the judge in issuing an order yesterday uh, said that 59 uh, children should be um should be reunited. It's, it's not even clear if that's going to happen. And, um, the ACLU attorneys have stated that there's no proof, there's no evidence about how that's going to happen. And the government has made some disturbing allegations already that some have already been deported. Um, some are obviously been pros are being prosecuted right now under the zero tolerance pos- uh, policies and so cannot be reunited at this time. Some can't be found. Um, and some, I think, which is even more disturbing is that the government is, you know, starting to uh, make these outrageous claims that, you know, the parents actually are a danger to their own children. Um, and, uh, you know, by saying that they've committed crimes, um, which is really troubling because, you know, to me, it really looks like a lot of uh, uh, propaganda to hide this you know, and smoke screens to hide the real crime, which is, you know, that everyone views family separation as child abuse. And, you know, the fact that they can't actually get to that, um, can't reunite the kids, um, is, is a crime in and of itself. But, you know, I think people are waiting to see, uh, whether they're going to reunite some children. I think they were trying to do that late into the evening and, you know, maybe, um, some dozens or so have been reunited, but, you know, already uh, over 100 have been identified. Um, certainly that's not going to happen. And frankly, there's an, an existing order that all children uh, have to be reunited by July 26th. Um, and we're looking at thousands of children, um, you know, in that case. And it's unclear how the government, which is dragging its feet, um, you know, I think putting forward a really dubious, uh, frankly, um, you know, uh, you know, ugly assertions to get around the responsibility for uniting the children um, is going to come to play. Um, how how the government's going to be sanctioned for this is unclear to me, but they, they definitely have not met their deadlines and, and no one is really seeing much proof um, that the government's trying to work hard to do that. Right. And in the, in the meantime, the government is not allowing U.S. sponsors family members of children in custody to easily obtain custody of these children and some of these children going into foster care. Now, what is the likelihood that these children be adopted out if it takes so long 
to reunite with their parents. And even if they reunite with their parents, if their parents choose to have their claims processed separately so that their children might have a stronger right to stay in the U.S., how do these parents, if they're deported, seek the custody of their children from outside? They can't simply compel the U.S. through their court system. They might have to do it through diplomatic means or retain counsel here, which may be prohibitively expensive or cumbersome for them to do. And so we're back to this likelihood that children will be adopted out by their foster parents because it seems that the foster parents, the longer they have custody of these children, will have the legal right to claim custody, correct? Yeah, I think, you know, there's a real risk as to what's going to happen to children who end up in foster care systems. And You know, we did see a bit of this happen um, during the Bush era 2008-2009 raids where, you know, there were these very massive, very violent raids where, um, you know, the the government came down in SWAT teams from helicopters and arrested people en masse and, and families were separated. And, you know, I think very recently there are, um, there was a, just a decision that came down where, uh, you know, a woman who had um, been separated during one of these raids was unable to regain custody of her of her child. Um, where um, it's really troubling that you know once they go to foster families, of course, you know the 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 well-being of the child is paramount, but, you know, they, they break these bonds and the parents who are being prosecuted are also facing at the same time these custody hearings where where people and sometimes these other families like trying to terminate parental rights. Um, and once that happens, you know, it's, it's really hard to, um, for these families to be together. Um, and I, I think, you know, given the fact that the government is dragging its feet and, you know, not moving quickly to ensure that families are together um, with either their parent or uh, a guardian or a, a lo- you know, a family member who can step into that role. Um, that That's a real risk. And I think, you know, not only are they dragging their feet, but they are, you know, implementing new processes suddenly, like new tests that are required, you know, for... Uh, people to demonstrate that they are related, which is, you know, frankly, um, just just nonsense requirements, um, given the fact that they are unwilling to set up processes to ensure that families actually are clustered together or, or remain together in the first place. You know, they're far more willing to separate them from the outset than to say that, you know, they should even be housed regionally. Um, they actually issued a document yesterday explaining how they're complying with the court's decisions and and how children will be treated under these laws and how they hope to reunify them um, with their families. However, um, they have really not uh, laid out any kind of process uh, for dealing with this issue of, of uh, family proceedings, um, which sometimes happen very quickly. Um, and... Uh, in a way where parents can't even show up for these custody hearings because they're detained by the, by um, you know the government for these immigration uh, proceedings. I'd like now to discuss the court-approved Flores settlement, which was uh, court-approved in 1997. 
Um, and that's after years of litigation between the ACLU and the government on applicable standards for the detention, release and treatment of children in what was then INS custody. The Ninth Circuit affirmed in 2016 that Flores applied both to accompanied and unaccompanied minors. And in April this year, that it's still effective and that minors are entitled to bond hearings. It seems that the Trump administration is justifying its policy of separating parents and children by complying with the strict 20-day deadline of the Flores settlement for the detainment of children, but it's also not complying with the Flores standards in its care of migrant children. May you please tell our audience more about the impact of the Flores settlement with respect to asylum applications for unaccompanied and accompanied migrant minors? Yeah, you know, um, I, I appreciate that you laid it out. You know, the Forest Settlement, which had a number of organizations involved in it, um, including the ACLU, um, it, it required a, n- a number of things. It required, you know, like you said, it was required to release children from immigration detention without unnecessary delay. Um, it said that they were, you know, supposed to put children in the least restrictive setting um, and make sure that uh that the government provided, you know, a proper uh, setting for children to be held. And you're right, the Trump administration is not really seeking to walk a tightrope. They've made their hostility to Flores pretty clear. They're using now this decision to justify uh, an expansion of family detentions. As you stated, there was an attempt by the Trump administration to modify the Flores Agreement, and they had asked to do that after uh, President Trump had issued an executive order, uh, you know, stating how he was going to deal with Flores um, in a way that, frankly, seems really confusing and inarticulate. You know, they they had said that uh, the Department of Homeland Security would end up uh, being end up being the jailer. Uh, for families as they enter the United States uh, to ensure that families are not separated again, you know, something that looks like mass family detention. The impact of that was that when the government tried to reopen Flores, and I think Judge Gee um, made some really, um, she issued a very strongly worded decision, right? She said that this was a tortured interpretation of the Flores Agreement um, and she, you know, criticized uh, the government roundly for trying to expand family detention. But, you know, she said that absolutely nothing prevents defendants from reconsidering their current blanket policy of family detention and reinstating prosecutorial discretion. It's not clear, like, how they plan to um, to work on this issue of, of the impact of Flores. I mean, Right now, I think a Department of Justice lawyer said that the government interprets this ruling by Judge Gee as giving parents two options. Either you have to sign away um, your rights to Flores, which I don't even know how that could happen, remain detained together for longer than 20 days, or you have to agree to be separated from your child. But we have yet to see how they're going to to make this um, work now that Flores remains intact. So we might see unaccompanied children in immigration court and unaccompanied children in our immigration court system do not have the right, only the privilege of representation by counsel. Much has been made of the statement by Judge Jack Wheel, and he has stated that this was taken out of context, in a deposition when he was an expert for the government in a previous litigation 
to establish the right to counsel for immigrant children, that uh, he has taught immigration law to three and four-year-olds. I mean, it's absolutely preposterous that we have toddlers, even infants, crying in front of judges in immigration court and that we call this a court system. It's a masquerade of justice. And it's unfortunate that the Ninth Circuit ruled that there is no right to counsel. And there's this logical fallacy here because the Ninth Circuit has also ruled that alien minors are entitled to Fifth Amendment rights of due process. Now, the courts have also recognized that in certain circumstances, a particular alien can have a right to representation based on disability. So if that, if it holds that alien minors have a right to due process, and if it holds that in certain circumstances, the courts understand that due to disabilities and incapacities, a certain person has a right to representation, well, doesn't it follow that all minors say even let's limit it to something ridiculous, like all minors under two have a right to representation? Yeah, I think this was something that the Northwest Immigrant Rights Project brought this case. And, and you're absolutely right that um, I think you laid it out really well, like the fallacy of the logic here that children are able to understand these very complicated proceedings that even adults have much trouble understanding. And, and, you know, there's a lot of statistics to show that outcomes are, are different. Uh, if people have a right to an immigration hearing and, and actually get counsel, like outcomes are very different for them than if they didn't. So imagine what it would be um, if children had that right. But there is this fallacy, right? And it's a, it's kind of rooted in this fiction that we have in our immigration law that while in criminal court, you have a right to assign counsel. The reason why you don't get an immigration court is because deportation is not punishment. And I think even though the courts are feeling more and more pressed to say that, wow, this is beginning to look a lot like punishment, they still haven't reached there. And it's really that, that distinction, this, this fiction that we have that this is a civil proceeding, that what happens is not um, equal to what happens when somebody is convicted of a crime that has led to outcomes like this. That's kind of like the root cause and how courts can make these distinctions uh, as to what counts as due process for non-citizens. You know, this is like, I agree with you, this is like a very banal way to look at due process. It is that children can sit with headphones on their head and supposedly understand words like you're entitled to a bond hearing or the government is alleging that you are subject to deportation under these categories of the law. For those of us who have children, we know that we have trouble, you know, making, you know, the fact that they have to go to bed at a certain time, you know, (laughs) a realistic possibility. I mean, so I agree with you that the that it's a fallacy um, and it's indefensible from a human rights perspective. And it seems that in our current immigration landscape, the only uh, effective means so far is to approach it at the local level. For instance, New York City does provide free counsel to those in need in deportation proceedings, as far as I'm aware. They they do, um, and it's only in certain jurisdictions, only in this in a certain number of boroughs in New York City, and you know that's an important experiment um, that that we hope 
other states and other jurisdictions will adopt um, because it has made a difference um, in New York City. Um, and we think it's really positive. And in fact, that, you know, it's led to um, more fair outcomes, better outcomes, less separation of families, and people who then continue to have faith um, in the law. When you're able to deport a one-year-old, right, uh, somebody who's going to be charged separately, and they can be brought to a courtroom and charged and deported. And, and you know, that has not only happened now, it has happened before for many years. There is a sick reality <laughs> that comes into play, like, um, it's, it's a, frankly like a... It's it, a Kafka situation. Yeah. We're living in a Kafka novel. what to do with it, right? But the fact is, is that the criminalization, I want to be clear, of migration and and we the really the roots of this go back to the prosecution of parents. Mm. Uh, you know, and, and I don't want that to be left behind in this, that if we... You know, we have elected to prosecute people often who are coming back to rejoin their families for decades, you know, and and that uh, that mainstreaming of that idea, that criminalization of migration um, really has led to these outrageous outcomes of children going into courts by themselves. And until we kind of look at the root causes of these policies, which again, I think have to do with, you know, when people are prosecuted, it's much easier for Trump and Attorney General Sessions to call them felons, right? Criminals who are coming to the United States to commit harm. We're looking at this and I think we're sympathetic to the parents who are being prosecuted, but we have to understand that it's the criminal justice system that's being used as a tool um, people are being labeled as criminals. And once you're labeled as criminals, it's really easy to make dehumanization work and make it the norm, not only in the criminal justice system, but in our immigration system. And that's the crisis that we have before us today. Yeah, they're changing the perspective because the people that are on the border claiming asylum are doing so under their international right to do so. And by criminalizing them, we are effectively criminalizing the the human right. It's quite ridiculous and grotesque. And just on your point on separating families, um, much attention is on the um, the family separation at the border, but we're separating more families. We're separating families that are in the United States, and we're not just separating um, migrant families, but we're separating families of U.S. citizens. We are taking away the parents of U.S. citizens and U.S. minor citizens, and thereby uh, splitting up U.S. citizen siblings and putting them into foster care at times and depriving them of their rights to their parents and to their family. Now, may you please elaborate more on this uh, separation that the government is doing? And and it seems that they're doing it out of the blue. Uh, The parent goes into a routine ICE check-in and uh, is expected to come home within a few hours and instead is deported without any notice to their children or preparation for their children uh, at times. 
Now, may you please elaborate on the government's separation of families and how U.S. citizen minors may petition, if they can, to keep their parents in the country in such circumstances? Yeah, this this separation of families is part and parcel of our immigration laws. You know, we were talking about how easy it is to get deported under our immigration laws for very minor crimes. Well, and it's also very easy to get an order of deportation for being here unlawfully. In the past administration, where I think they held family integrity to be an important consideration, um, where families could check in and they could report, and they did report regularly to ICE offices, you know, on this good faith that splitting up the family was not viewed as a a good thing for the United States that splitting families was not only created emotional trauma, but exacerbates poverty within a family, right? You lose a breadwinner, you lose um, access to important services that they may be providing, um, they may lose their business, right? There's lots of reasons why check-ins were a good idea. Many of these families have minor children. So I can tell you that I have worked on dozens of cases, like many others, where you have a family member here who's been here for a long time, and they have minor children, and they are checking in, and then suddenly now they are being turned around and deported on a moment's notice. Uh, People who are business owners, people who have strong community ties, people who are just beloved, obviously. Um, For any of us who love our children or who love our parents, you can't, you know, I think the secrecy um, and the the swiftness of the deportations are breathtaking. And what does it mean for the children who are left behind? You know, again, those children are left without parents. Where do they go? Right? Do they also go into the foster care system? Do they live with people they don't know? Um, Will they have an opportunity to petition for their parents? U.S. citizen children don't get an opportunity to uh, petition for their parents um, until they're 21. And once they're 21, they can. And that is, they may be able to petition for them only if there are not other barriers that stop them, right, from coming back in. So assuming that they'll be able to petition for them because all these other barriers are not going to be in the way, um, and there are many, then they can bring them back in. But what you're really looking at, those kids will also be without their parents. Of course, when children need their parents the most is when they're um, below the age of majority. A five-year-old needs their parents much more than a 21-year-old, and that is when they're uh, denied the right to petition for their parents. I mean, that it's um it's quite preposterous it's so preposterous you know that they need them then and you know even if somebody was convicted of a crime it's you know and they were reporting many of these people already served their time and they served it they were punished it's just another round of separation for them and it's just it's just heartbreaking to see that people who really are trying to do right by their family, do right by their community, do right for this society, um, end up facing the most extreme of all consequences, right? Which is either prison or deportation. (laughs) Which are both punitive. Uh, Deportation is punitive. It takes you away from your country and your family, somewhere where you might have resided, whether illegally or legally, but really built a life for decades. And, uh, and taken away from that. So I don't understand how we don't see that as a punitive measure. Um, 
Now, the, the other thing that ICE is doing right now is that it's focusing on its sites apparently on immigrant activists and deporting people because of their political speech. Now, this seems in direct violation of the First Amendment. How can one challenge removal proceedings that appear to be motivated by political sentiment? You know, this is so funny um, for us to hear, right? Because the United States of of many of the constitutional amendments it you know holds most dear. It's the First Amendment, right? This this right of free speech. Um, but it should be no surprise that the United States has historically targeted non citizens who've been politi- politically active. Attorney General Palmer, he conducted raids on you know hundreds of non citizens, accusing them of being radicals, right? Um, there were activists, uh, a president of the International Longshore and Warehouse Unions, who were targeted by other attorney generals in the 1940s and 50s, right, um, for deportation because of their activism. Um, there were activists against apartheid, um, South African poets who were deported. Um, and then there were people who hold politically unpopular opinions, um, but were, you know, lawfully here, um, what we call the Los Angeles Eight, the LA Eight. They were activists who had supported Palestine, um, and they were um, put into deportation proceedings, tried to be denaturalized, put into deportations, and the government almost succeeded um, it was a 20-year-old case that they fought over for a long time. And so, you know, I would say that this has been, we have to hold both truths, right? That um, sadly, we think we value the First Amendment, but we also, um, we have an immigration agency, which is frankly turned into one of the largest policing agencies in the United States, right? It has more police agents, um, more, more agents armed with, you know, guns um, than any other policing department in the United States. Um, And they have enormous power to wield against um, activists and anybody whom they don't view as being, you know, that they want here. You can see that already um, through their targeting of immigrant activists. So, you know, most recently, um, you know, I would say that there have been a, a few activists that we've been in touch with who've been targeted. Um, Ravi Rugbeer, he was a prominent organizer um, um, and a founder and executive director of the New Sanctuary Coalition in New York City, um, an organization that mobilizes grassroots communities to act together to reform immigration policies. Um, they abruptly took him into custody during his own check-in. And then uh, sent him to 1,000 miles away to Florida with the intention of deporting him. He has been here for decades. He is married to a U.S. citizen. Um, he has um, a child here. Um, it wasn't, it had to be, it was Herculean organizing and litigation efforts that led to him being brought back to New York City. He's just here on a stay of deportation. And a person whom we're representing, Maru Mora Villalpando, she's a well-known community organizer in Washington State who has really fixated most of her activism against closing immigration detention centers. And for all intents and purposes, you know, when we looked at her background documents, when she was served with a removal hearing notice, what's called a notice to appear, it said that she'd been identified due to her admissions to a local newspaper, that she was undocumented, and that they had found her out because of her anti-ICE protests. That's what they call her. 
Um, and so, you know, there are other folks, um, people who have been a clam harvester in Washington state, an ICE agent who said that my supervisor asked me to come find you because of what happened in a newspaper or um, people who've been taking sanctuary in churches. An activist named Daniela Vargas, who was actually detained by ICE after she was leaving a news conference in Jackson, Mississippi, after she had spoken out in favor of DACA. The, all these examples show that the government is more and more interested in getting at immigration activists. And I think they're doing that because it's kind of a typical response to um, people who they want to quash attempts to fight back. And that's why I think our organization really felt very strongly about engaging directly into these cases. One way that we've done is by representing them. Another way is by putting together a practice advisory on how you can challenge these types of attempts by the government to target immigration activists. To discourage immigration activism. <laughs> and media coverage thereof, it seems. I would just like to uh, move to discussing um, asylum seekers because of the government's effective criminalization of asylum right now. Um, and we haven't discussed what asylum really is. Now, unfortunately, in my opinion, international law and immigration law only recognize asylum with respect to persecution and for instance, do not recognize pervasive extreme poverty or a credible fear that a person's life is endangered by extreme poverty uh, doesn't qualify as asylum. To me, that's an arbitrary distinction, but that is the asylum system from our recognition of civil and political rights and uh, not economic rights. Now, I'd like to discuss what what qualifies as a credible fear of persecution and what qualifies as the identification in a social group that qualifies for asylum and how this is changing. I understand that Attorney General Sessions has changed this in the matter of AB with respect to domestic violence. How do gang violence and domestic violence qualify as persecution of a social group? Yeah, I mean, you know, there's so much scholarship and litigation around this. If you wanted to apply for asylum, um, you have to apply within one year of your entry into the United States. But what has happened is that we have really focused our attention um, to ports of entry at the border. So when people show up um, at ports of entry in the border, Congress passed a series of laws, which was called expedited removal. It was like a fast track procedure. So like expedited removal said, you come to the border, we're going to evaluate whether you kind of meet this, um, this threshold for seeing whether you qualify for asylum. And if you don't, we're just going to turn you around and going to be deported. That's called expedited removal. And in fact, hundreds of thousands have been deported under that already. But just focusing on the credible fear interview, what do you have to show? People had huge concerns about this expedited removal procedure under our laws, which is frankly, I think, a structural way for us to discourage asylum in the first place because it sets up standards on how people's asylum claims are going to be adjudicated. But it said that you come, you have to show that you have a credible fear of persecution. And that means that you're going to be interviewed by an asylum off by somebody at the border. They're going to evaluate whether you pass what's called a credible fear test. 
if you don't pass, you get one shot to appeal that determination to an immigration judge. If you lose that, you're out. If you win, you'll have an immigration hearing. But your best chance, of course, is to pass that first credible fear test, which happens when you meet that agent at the border um, and hopefully we'll meet an asylum officer at the border. And they ask you a series of questions. You know, what are you scared of? Why are you scared? Why did you leave? And they ask you these questions because they want to determine, you know, whether you've been persecuted and whether you qualify for asylum because you can articulate that you're part of a particular social group, um, which is like basically a group of people who share a common characteristic um, other than the risk of being persecuted, people who are perceived as a group that could, you know, a very easy example of that, or let's say people who are in a union, right? Um, that would be one very easy, obvious example of people who could show that they're in a particular social group. Um, and if you fall under that particular social group and you can tie that particular social group to your persecution, then hey, Everything is great, and you can hopefully then get a chance to apply for asylum before an immigration judge, which is a whole nother process where you have to collect evidence um, and prove that you qualify for asylum. So that's the process. So what is particular social group? A lot of people, you know, for this, the categories that you discussed, which is domestic violence and gang violence, the government was unwilling or unable to control people who were committing crimes against a particular social group where they were doing it with essentially with impunity, where government infrastructure is so poor that these people would... Um, essentially not have any ability to protect themselves or not be able to protect themselves at all and really were being forced to flee um, from their from their country. Um, that was the basis for why uh, people could show that, you know, um, domestic violence, for example, could potentially be a ground for, um, for uh, people who were asking for asylum from the United States. Now, it isn't just domestic violence broadly. Um, you know, it had to be a particular social group. And people had done, like, really, um, I think, carefully narrowed, well-tailored particular social groups where people who were, you know, married and in relationships who um, had asked for protection or had fled because they knew that they weren't going to receive that protection uh, from the government, let's say, you know, unable to get a restraining order or complaints that were never dealt with by the police or too fearful sometimes to even lodge a complaint because of the retaliation that they would get, you know, from um, a spouse or a partner. Um, you know, those were all reasons that had been accepted for various you know, reasons and various courts uh, for a long time. For gang asylum, it was that, you know, the government was unable to control um, gangs in their country. And there's a lot of documentation out there that showed that, um, you know, either there was collusion between um, government officials, police departments, and gangs um, that really proved to be insurmountable for a person to fight against, to make complaints against when they were fleeing. Um, or, you know, gangs were just essentially operating with impunity in some of those other places, and that's why they were fleeing. Either way, conditions were untenable. 
And what this attorney general decided to do was to overturn all of it. In a case called Matter of AB, he just literally overturned years of jurisprudence by making some really erroneous assertions about what is a particular social group and how is it tied to persecution. He made some really kind of like radically out of the way interpretations of what those particular social groups should look like. And he overturned those cases, leaving thousands of families in jeopardy. And if you only heard these stories, I think you would really get a sense of how terrible the persecution could be. And you would get a sense that the particular social group that was being put forward, you know, whether it was a person who had been part of a group that had been um, refusing the gang's overtures to, jo- to join a gang or, um, or, you know, people who had, were in a gang but had reformed and decided to leave at great cost and risk to themselves, those groups were suddenly not tenable anymore. Um, and so I think people are revisiting. There's lots of great practice advisories that this decision should be treated very narrowly. But it was very clear that he was trying to upend, undo years of jurisprudence because, you know, frankly, immigrants were winning um, in the courts. And, you know, he was angry that people had articulated a claim that, uh, you know, that courts have recognized for years. And he picked a really dubious way to upend it, which is just to declare on his own that it's not going to be the law of the land anymore. Um, This power is unusual, just to be clear, you know, um, it's unusual that the attorney general can go back and look at case law and decide that he can overturn it unilaterally, um, which is what he did. Um, And so that, you know, that power that he has exerted, he's exerted it already uh, two or three times unilaterally, um, um, to, I think, argue on, on really, um, on false justifications that people are, you know, and he uses these terms, you know, like swarming the United States under these bases for persecution, um, into the United States. Dehumanizing immigrants, because when we think of swarm, we think of insects. Yeah. His, his language is very, uh, vitriolic. Yeah, I think, um, you know, they, they've really positioned this language. They're evoking dehumanizing language on purpose. And, you know, personally, and I mentioned this before, the fact that they were trying to dehumanize parents of the children by saying that they were convicted of crimes, you know, therefore they don't have a right to be rejoined with their, with their child was, was shocking to me. Mm-hmm. Um, it's definitely a march that they are invested in, a march to dehumanization of, of black and brown immigrants, you know, essentially. So Attorney General Sessions has been using this self-referral process uh, much more enthusiastically than any other attorney general we've seen since the 50s. He's referred four cases this year alone, and it, he's referring them, as you mentioned, to upend immigration law. Uh, and protections for immigrants. But is there a way to challenge his self-referral? 
You know, that's a great question. Um, I'm not sure I have an answer to that today, but I think people are exploring this self-referral process uh, was given to him by Congress, sadly. So um, it would be a challenge, but I think the manner in which he is overturning the cases and ignoring precedent might come up. What he's certainly doing, he's really at least setting it up for a whole round of fights at the appellate level. It's interesting that he claims to be following the law and creating efficiencies when in fact what he's doing is exactly the opposite. He's abrogating jurisprudence. He's abrogating history, precedent, you know, et cetera. And uh, I think the other thing that he's doing is he is creating conditions where attorneys will be filing appeals as high as they can go because that's what they're going to have to do for their clients, right? And um, that's going to clog up the appeals court. And this has been a complaint uh, by the appeals courts for a very long period of time, which saw these kind of monumental shifts in immigration law when they were brought by the attorney general through these self-referral processes. I think in the Seventh Circuit alone, it led to like a 700% increase, right? And circuit courts of appeals, because that's where you go after you lose a case from the highest immigration appeals court, the Board of Immigration Appeals. And so it's really going to create inefficiencies in a major way. And no one's going to really be equipped to handle it. So I'd like to now discuss the recent uh, decision of Rodriguez, which denied bail hearings to non-citizens, which seems to be a logical fallacy because we've accepted that non-citizens have certain uh, due process rights in immigration court. Now, if they have some due process rights, surely they have the right to a bond hearing. So yes, Jennings versus Rodriguez was a class action lawsuit that was brought by the ACLU, was brought in California in the Central District. And it challenged the government's practice of jailing immigrants for months or years without a custody hearing while they fight their deportation cases. So, you know, the tragedy of the immigration court system is, you know, first, if you are subject to mandatory detention, which is very easy to be subject to, um, it can happen for example, for people who, who are what's called arriving asylum seekers. You can also be subject to mandatory detention if you've committed crimes that fall within like this wide class of offenses. Everything, like you said, from possession of a drug to a theft offense. These all could be grounds for a mandatory detention. And people would stay there for years in jail, you know, while they fight out their case because it takes a long time for these cases to move through the court system. And so often people would self-deport, right, because of the length of time, even when they had meritorious claims. Even if they could win, you just had a bad immigration judge or you had a wrong interpretation. Um, and that happens, believe it or not. You know, I've seen decisions where immigration judges appear to ignore Supreme Court precedent and just issue their own decision. And those cases would certainly receive favorable treatment in an appeals court, but it takes time to get there. And so people spend months, years in jails. And so when the ACLU filed this class action, everyone was thrilled and courts came down. And in that particular case, they want a class-wide permanent injunction 
which required custody hearings after six months of detention. All it did was give you the possibility of having a bond hearing, not that you would absolutely be released, but that you would get a bond hearing. And the Ninth Circuit upheld that. And they upheld that because, you know, they said that prolonged detention without a hearing raised serious due process concerns. And they concluded that the law itself, the statutes themselves, clearly authorized that. Looking at some of the constitutional issues there, and they said that, you know, we're just going to look at the statute and we're going to, the statute really says that, you know, we're going to require an automatic bond hearing before the immigration judge at six months of, de- of detention. And that went up and it appealed. And then unfortunately, what happened is the Supreme Court um, disagreed. They reversed that judgment of the Ninth Circuit and they kicked it back. And they said that, listen, you know, we don't think that the statute says that. We think that's an implausible reading of the statute. um, And we don't think that the statute says that you should get that six months. However, what they did do is they left it open and they said that, you know, even even though the statute may not, like, give you that, they said that, um, you know, we have never really reached this issue of whether there could be a constitutional reason, a due process reason, that the hearing could be granted. And so they kicked it back because they said we didn't really reach that issue and there might be a constitutional basis whether, um, you know, due process requires a hearing in cases of prolonged detention. So that, that remains open. Um, But it was really troubling to see that, you know, a decision that had helped, you know, people avoid, um, you know, frankly, um, many, many, many months, um, many potentially years in detention, um, where it was clear that they were invested in fighting their case, where it was clear that they would be able to pay a bond, um, you know, where it was clear that it was in the interest of everyone involved that people get these kinds of hearings that it was overturned, um, you know, but there is hopefully a ray of sunshine left where the court may be able to find, you know, constitutional reasons that prolonged detention shouldn't be allowed. Um, And that, you know, maybe, maybe that will be one way to move forward. But yeah, Jennings versus Rodriguez um, was um, a case that we all hoped would survive. And, um, you know, we were all um, saddened when the court decision came out when it did, but um, it didn't abrogate all the all the um, decisions out there. Um, there are some groups who will still get prolonged detention hearings, but unfortunately, we're going to have there's going to have to be new test cases to see whether the Constitution will be a basis for these new what we call habeas petitions in federal district court. So now I'd like to move to the deportation of citizens, which has unfortunately and surprisingly been happening for years. And it seems a very efficient way of the government to remove those it deems undesirable because in immigration court procedures, you're not entitled to representation. You just have this privilege of representation, even though you are deprived liberty because you're detained and you're deported from essentially your life here. So may you please elaborate more on the detainment and deportation of citizens and this inability to have counsel provided in these circumstances? 
Yeah, I mean, I think what they mean by this is that, you know, once you're a green card holder, after you've been a green card holder for a certain number of years, um, or, you know, you might be, you'll be eligible to be, to naturalize. Um, but there are restrictions, um, for naturalization and they could be for many reasons. Maybe you've spent too much time outside the United States. Maybe you've committed certain crimes long ago. Um, and what, but, you know, what kind of spurred this issue, which I think was an opportunistic way for the government to incite fear and paranoia into people and to discourage people from applying for naturalization uh, was um, was this uh, report that came out from the DHS Office of Inspector General where, like, it looked like there were some irregularities and fingerprint cards um, in some naturalization cases. And then suddenly what, um, you know, the Trump administration decides to do was to create, you know, two new operations to ensure that, you know, um, to ensure that people who were naturalized, naturalized properly, um, you know, and they, you know, kind of created these two things. Sorry to interrupt you, but is this the denaturalization task force? Well, this is Operation Janus and Operation Second Look, and then they are now moving that to a denaturalization task force. And what they're really trying to do is to look at people who they claim did not include all the all the information that they should have included in their naturalization application. And then if they didn't, then they would reopen their cases in federal court to denaturalize them. It is like ridiculous, frankly. I mean, there's already a huge amount of vetting that happens when people try to naturalize. There are checks that occur all the time regularly. And in fact, they happen so often that, you know, our heads are spinning um, by how often they occur. Um, there, there are fingerprint checks, there are name checks, there are repeated checks um, through their own databases. Um, and what happened was, you know, I, I think it's it's really this kind of um, fake task force where there's they're trying to create this um, this really kind of um, disturbing narrative that there are, you know, and and it really kind of resonates with some of the kind of like the the, the voting of non citizens. You know, arguments that we've been hearing about that there are all these all these naturalized citizens who lied and committed fraud, um, you know, and there are let's just be real. There are tens of thousands of naturalized naturalizations that occur right um, every every year. Um, but now they're trying to taint all of them by saying that, you know, we had to create this task force because we think there are people who are naturalizing who never should have and received naturalization benefits who are now U.S. citizens and are now voting and, you know, um, getting benefits for being a U.S. citizen when they never should have. And, and, and I think this is all a red herring um, because, you know, this is going to look very much like um, – Personally, I think it's going to look very much like the the cries of non-citizen voters where the Trump administration and, you know, some of these extreme right-wing nativists, racists were claiming that non-citizens were voting, but, you know, not a shred of evidence, 
you know, was produced that non-citizens were voting, I think is going to look very similar um, to this. But I think mm-hmm. they will go back and they are going to, you know, unpack a bunch of cases um, where they will find, um, you know, people who um, either didn't know they had to disclose it or disclose it. Like, you know, I think just today there was a case of a grandmother um, who played a very, very, very minor role, um, I think, in some fraud scheme, who didn't even know, I think, the extent of the fraud, who got house arrest, and uh, I think for six months, and, uh, you know, paid 5000 in restitution. These are, like, fairly minor consequences. Um, but because, you know, she, and she thought that she did it all, she paid everything, um, you know, she began working again, um, she was a legal permanent resident, obviously. She naturalized, but because um, the government said she didn't put that in her application, she didn't even know she had to put that in because it was dismissed. You know, that's how she thought that you only put in um, uh, you only put in criminal history where it looks like, you know, in her mind, looks like a conviction, so she didn't put it in, Um, you know, they're trying to deport her now by putting her into denaturalization proceedings. Those are the outcomes we're going to start seeing, which are ridiculous. I mean, it's also very ominous, right, this narrative, because it's essentially creating two classes of citizens, those that are are born here and those that are not. And essentially for everybody that's not born here, you're never going to get equal status and therefore never really get citizenship because citizenship implies equality and implies permanence. And if you don't have equality and permanence with citizens that are born here, then you don't really have citizenship, do you? What's interesting is they talk about efficiencies again and they talk about the lack of money um, and the resources that need to be poured into this. And you know, this requires them, again, to go to federal court, you know, file a complaint, reopen this case, you know, under a specific statute. Like, it's a lot of work, you know. And again, you know, instead of focusing on other issues that they could be focusing on that have to do with, instead of focusing on those things, they're focusing on, you know, essentially, creating a task force, which is Operation Janus on steroids, you know, and, and, um, you know, that's, it's really, it's really terrible, um, that, that they want to create this narrative, essentially that naturalized citizens, you should always have a doubt as to whether they're citizens or not. So as a final question, I'd like to discuss this intersection of criminal and immigration law. Um, and, what you believe is the most necessary precursor to a more fair, just, and equal immigration system that is not so intertwined with criminal law? Yeah, I mean, I think immigration law was deliberately designed to intertwine with criminal law because they were prefaced on some of like the same troubling ideas around criminalizing people of color. You know, I, I know that may not be how most people see it, but I think there are strong links. Uh, there's been a lot of amazing scholarship that has come out that really show how the criminal justice system has really been used to incarcerate, you know, people of color 
And I think um, there are a lot of, there's a lot of legislative history to show that um, immigration law was also designed to do the same thing. And it makes sense that, you know, the people who are engaged in enforcement want to combine and use both of these systems to um, deport non-citizens because it's easy. You can say that, of course, people should be deported for murder, and that's a, you know, that's a debate that we should all have. But, you know, it has also led to people being deported for a broken taillight, right? And so the sprawl of these systems and the reach that it has into our everyday lives, I think, speak to the need to examine what are we trying to do with um, our immigration systems and our immigration agencies. Um, And I would say that there's a real concern that I have, you know, that DHS, which is a creature of statute from 911, it's only been around for 15 years. um, And yet it has grown into a federal agency that eclipses both the FBI, the Secret Service. It receives $68 billion in funding CBP and ICE are now the largest federal immigration policing forces in the United States, right? They are police forces. They have grown without accountability, without oversight. Um, And I think there's a real question that we should ask. There's an imagination that we should have. And what does it look like to remove those agencies? Um, And what systems you know, do we actually need that would improve the quality of life for people in the United States? Now we can see when you have a government that has a hostility towards immigrants, how powerful it can be to deport and incarcerate immigrants at historic rates, right? Um, And to um, really create a culture of um, danger for non-citizens, not only from you know, immigration agents, but, you know, to create a hostility and to amplify like a culture of hate, right, um, within the United States. And I think they are using it um, in ways that we were, we speculated when we saw the Department of Homeland Security emerge, you know, and, and if you look at the history of it, it has very little oversight, very little scrutiny, um, and it escapes scrutiny most of the time. And so um, to have an agency with that much power um, operate within the United States is a question that we should be asking, why is it, why is it existing right now? Mm-hmm. When it comes to our immigration laws, you know, I think there's some really easy things we could do. We could repeal the laws that lead to the criminalization of migration criminalizing unlawful entry, criminalizing illegal reentry, like statutes could be repealed. Um, I think it's a question of whether we really think um, it should happen. You know, we circulated a sign-on letter um, and over 130 groups signed on. And, you know, I think it speaks to this idea that we need to repeal um, our criminalization laws. We need to repeal some of the, the laws that were passed in 1996 laws that were created to deal with terrorism after the bombing of the Oklahoma federal prison by um, white nationalists, right? Um, Instead, they created these laws um, to tackle immigrants. And 
IRA-IRA, and EDPA. And both of these laws uh, serve to create new penalties uh, for immigrants in a way that we have not seen. That is why we had Jennings, because it created mandatory detention. You know, that's why we had to challenge laws with DiMaia, because it created mandatory deportation, right? Mm-hmm. Um, it's created um, responses because we have now institutionalized I think not only as a matter of law, but as practice, that mandatory detention and mandatory deportation are normal. Um, And so I think we need to repeal those types of laws, you know. But I think you can't do it without looking at the conduct and the and the nature of these agencies. Um, And so you probably have seen the abolish ICE, um, you know, hashtags. And I think uh, for those who care about the issues around due process, who care about the health and care of all non-citizens, the children, the families that are being, you know, deported. It requires, like, for us to reimagine what it could look like if we didn't have these agencies at this time, right? These agencies that are operating with impunity. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, um, I would say, like that, those are those are two things that I would consider um, that I think others should consider. Well, thank you very much for your valuable insight and your time today, Paromita. I really appreciate it. Oh, totally. It was really, um, it was a pleasure to speak with you. Thank you for having me on. I hope you have found this podcast insightful and will join us next time as we explore more issues affecting our environment and human rights at home and around the world. For more materials on this issue, please go to our website, thegravity.fm.